this is a huge thing is that many Americans are thinking we can't bring a knife to a gunfight here. They're terrible. They're out for blood. And so we have to be too. And if you can intervene and say, well, things are not rosy, but you are overestimating how, how bad the views of your rivals are, that is a very effective strategy. People are not getting that kind of information from the news. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Rob Willer, is a professor of sociology and psychology at Stanford and head of their Polarization and Social Change Lab, where they do large-scale experiments testing what kinds of interventions bring people together or divide them, among other things. So he is expert in something very relevant to our politically divided society. Rob also studies how political psychology findings can be applied to construct persuasive political messages, something of great interest to me. I was interested also in Rob's somewhat non-standard career story as well as his current work. He's a really good guest. You should listen. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Rob Willer of Stanford University. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Rob, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure, absolutely. I'm Rob Willer. I'm a professor of sociology and psychology at Stanford University, and I'm also the director of the Polarization and Social Change Lab here at Stanford. And my background is that I am a kind of a generalist social scientist. I got my PhD at Cornell University in sociology, but I studied a lot of psychology in graduate school. I do a lot of experimental work, and my work has gradually focused more and more on contemporary American politics. I started out as a researcher of cooperation and generosity primarily, and then more and more the, the sorts of dilemmas that I'm interested in are political dilemmas. I've always been interested in social dilemmas, how people achieve cooperation or positive ends despite barriers they face. And now the focus of that work is political. And my podcast focuses a lot on the progressive ecosystem and the battle between the two parties, but also on the democracy and protecting and improving that. And so I think there's a lot of relevance to what you do and other people who are working on the social science around how do we get along that makes a lot of sense to bring to this. I'm also interested in people's careers and how they get to posts like you have and being able to do these kind of experiments and spend your life on that's pretty, pretty cool. Tell me a little bit about that, the path for you, 
because when you talk to young people who are, you know, just in college or even before, sometimes it seems impossible, but these things happen step by step. How did you end up in the college that you did? How did you go through that, decide on sociology, et cetera? And how did you move through? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, great question. Thanks for even wondering. I guess in, in a lot of ways, my professional journey is is in some ways like really typical and then in some ways really atypical. So it's it's really typical in the sense that my dad was a social scientist and a sociologist. And I grew up knowing the life of being a professor, you know, what it would be like, the merits of that life, the things that are really attractive about it, not having a boss, having a lot of autonomy, being able to explore your ideas for a living learning a lot and sharing that knowledge, you know, so I knew a lot about what was so great about being a professor. And I think in the back of my head, I was like, boy, it would be great to do that myself. But then my path was also sort of unconventional in the sense that I dropped out of college. My freshman year of college, I wasn't getting my work done and just wasn't particularly motivated to be in college. I had made really bad grades in high school, or at least mediocre grades, we'll say, and just was not was not into college, you know, just wasn't into it. And so I took a lot of time off and worked a lot of mostly blue collar jobs from landscaping to construction to working in a kitchen, dishwashing, pizza delivery, like lots of stuff to just pay the bills, pay my rent and hang out with my friends. And I I did that for a while. And then eventually. Uh, Can I ask just a question about that? Because I, uh, to me, that's really interesting because you don't, you're right. It's atypical, at least for a Stanford professor, to have that. What did you learn from that kind of job that you might not have learned if you hadn't had that period of time? Well, a couple things. Like one, and it took me a while to learn this, but I learned how to be a hard worker. I developed a really strong work ethic and also some work skills. Like I learned how to like chunk my work so that large projects would not be so intimidating, but instead would be a series of discrete tasks that I could complete. So I developed some work skills that that helped me, but also just developed a strong identity as a hard worker. I, it, that took a while because like I was a really bad construction worker. I was really bad at landscaping. I was a pretty bad pizza delivery man. You know, I, got, I even got laid off from a pizza delivery job. But as a cook, I wound up being pretty good at that. And I was fast and I cared about the work. I took pride in my work. And that's where things really took off for me. I built an, a perception of myself as a hard worker that was really, really valuable to take back to school, especially after having had the experience of dropping out, making shitty grades, having some self-esteem around a work ethic was something I'd never really had before. So that was cool. And then the other thing is that I guess I had the experience of really getting some dirt under my fingernails, having the experience of having an oppressive landlord, having the experience of being embarrassed to go to the bank to cash my checks because it was dirty and they were just such clean places filled with upper middle class people with money and who wore suits. I felt the experience of being, you know, in America's working poor. That's an invaluable experience because you can know that that exists and care about it in principle and do great work. But for me, I think I'm able to stay focused on doing work that hopefully can contribute to some sort of economic redistribution. I'm a little more motivated for having gotten some dirt under my fingernails. Did it make you think maybe there's a good reason to go to college and to move into that upper middle-class world? A hundred percent. Yeah. And people who saw that I had that opportunity to go back to that were just like, why would you not just go do that? (laughs) 
<laughs> I they wouldn't mind that opportunity themselves if it, if it were workable. Exactly. Yeah, they yeah. could see that I had a lot of a lot of opportunity that was a lot of privilege that was not not everybody had, and I did have that ability to go back to college. I was kind of sitting there. And, and I, it was influential to me, a, a friend of mine, Darren, who uh, was sort of like the, the head chef at a restaurant I worked at, he had that reaction where he was like, yeah, you should go back to college. Like, it doesn't make any sense that you'd be here if you don't have to be. And that was a pretty generous thing to say, given that he was there, you know, he was looking out for me. So had you dropped out of University of Iowa or you just went back to it? Yeah, well, it's funny because I thought I had dropped out and would need to reapply or something. And they were like, no, you can just re-enroll in classes. We just know that you withdrew from all your classes a couple of years ago. So you're welcome to re-enroll. And I was like, okay, <laughs> I thought I thought I would be punished in some way. But they were like, yeah, yeah, we're just waiting for you to start taking some classes. So that was nice. And, <laughs> and so I went back and I had a work ethic and I started working hard. And uh, especially once I got through require classes and got into the classes I was passionate about, which wound up being sociology and psychology, uh, then I really caught speed. And, and then before I knew it, it was perceived as a hardworking person. And people were really surprised to find out that I'd had this other experience. And that gradually replaced my perception of myself with this new perception, at least professionally. But I still lurks there. I still have this suspicion that I'm just a, a very lazy person that <laughs> is not going to finish this paper. And it, it, it propels me in my work even now to, to, to try to scrap and, and get the work done. Why sociology and psychology? Well, I really like the duality of it. You know, like psychology really emphasizes the way internal motivations, beliefs, emotions affect what people do. And then sociology is kind of all about how none of that matters, right? Like that you're trapped in these social structures that determine your outcomes and it's society operates upon you and they're both right. You know, like both of these things matter. And it's to me, I love working with both of these paradigms. And my, you know, my wife is a social worker and she, her work sits at the intersection of the same two paradigms. You know, if you're trying to help people that are down and out, you try to help them get into a structurally better situation, you know, help them find housing, help them access benefits that are available to them, structurally change the material conditions of their life. But you also talk to them about their problems. You try to do some therapy with them and, and help them deal with traumas they've experienced from their poverty and, and their experiences. So it's that same duality. We are a product of structures and, and also the things happening inside our minds. Did you have anything between college and going to Cornell for the graduate work? Not really. I pretty much went straight through for me, I felt like a racehorse whose gate opened once I got back coming out of being a short order cook. And it was really like catching speed on the cooking job more than anything. That was the, the, the break for me rather than going back to college, if that makes sense. It was. Yeah. yeah. How was the PhD program for you? It was great. I had a lot of freedom. I was very, very fortunate to have a lot of academic freedom there and have a decent line on some research support. And, you know, early or about midway through my career in graduate school, I did a paper on the effects of government-issued terror warnings on Bush's approval rating. And so if you, I'm sure you remember this, but during Bush's first term after 9-11, they would do these press conferences regularly where they would announce these terror threats. And it would be like, on the Eastern Seaboard, we have credible information that there's going to be an attack potentially in the next 10 days. And just these vague threats would be announced, and then they eventually had the color-coded alert system. 
And I became very cynical about these press conferences because they just seemed to serve no purpose except to, I mean, I don't know if this was part of their strategy of thwarting these attacks, but it, it, it clearly had an effect of putting people in a state of real fear of attack. And I became cynical about this and wondered, well, is this having the effect of bolstering Bush's approval ratings, which were kind of otherwise going down steadily from the record high right after 9-11 and analyzed these data, did this time series analysis. It wasn't the best. I wasn't a great time series data analyst yet, and I would do it differently now. But what I did find in my analyses was that there was this effect of like bolstering Bush's approval rating, like 3% for a couple weeks after each terror alert and, and having this effect of buttressing this otherwise downward sloping approval rating. And, and then, of course, he, he won by a few points after over Kerry in 2004. The reason I bring this up is the, my personal experience with doing this research was really transformative for me because the research was we put out a press release on it. It went out like somewhere around October 1st, 2004. And it was right around the time, like Michael Moore had just done Fahrenheit 9-11, and there was just beginning to be some criticism about uh, the way that the war on terror was being handled and some some critiques were being levied, uh, which was, you know, it was a tense time around that issue. You know, people were really afraid to say much of anything. So this was covered in Associated Press articles. It was covered in newspapers all over the world multiple times and was on television news. And I remember like a few days before the election on the Friday before there was this Osama bin Laden video that came out like four days before the 2004 election. Nobody talks about this, but it happened. And I remember getting calls from like the Today Show and the Morning Show or whatever, a couple of these Today Show type shows that I don't watch. (laughs) One of them, the producer was like, we're not sure if the White House is gonna make a big deal out of this. But if they do, we want to bring you down to New York City and interview you about the research, you know? And and I was like, sure, I'll do that. That's fine. And they were like, but we're hearing from the White House that they're probably not going to because they're getting hammered on this whole terror alerts issue. And I was like, oh, wow. Like that's, you know, there wasn't a lot out there at that time. That was in part, at least my research. And I was like, wow, this is, you can do research that actually people read, they learn about, it changes the way they perceive current events and politics and potentially even affects the landscape that the significant political actors are operating within, and maybe in a favorable way. Didn't really, I mean, 2004 election happened the way it did. But for me, that I was like, wow, that's that's tremendously exciting. I would like to do more work like that. Yeah, it seems like that kind of thing would be heady for a graduate student to have something like that happen. Totally. And I was in way over my head, you know, in so many ways. I was getting interviewed by people. And I remember like a Washington Post columnist was like, so what can I call you? Graduate student really sounds bad, you know? And I was like, well, I am a graduate student. And I was like, you could call me the director of the small groups lab at Cornell. And he's like, that's not a lot better, but I'll use that. And then he used it in his thing and he made a joke about it. He's like, is somebody else in charge of the large groups lab? You know? <laughs> My low status was a problem for, the, <laughs> for a lot of journalists. Right. What did you write your dissertation on? So my dissertation was on how contributions to group efforts are rewarded with respect and prestige. It was an experimental dissertation where I set up a series of experiments trying to isolate exactly how that dynamic worked. And the whole idea was to offer a theoretical solution to what's called the the free rider problem or the collective action problem, which is basically like, why do people make contributions to collective efforts when they could just free ride on the efforts of others? And my contribution to that conversation was to say, well, one of the reasons is because they're respected more if they do. 
that makes sense. How did you get from Cornell to Stanford? Well, I was very fortunate to get a job interview at UC Berkeley out of graduate school for an assistant professor position there, and then get the offer from Berkeley. So I spent the first six or seven years of my academic career at Berkeley doing research, doing more and more political research, but also cooperation stuff, and then got an offer to move to Stanford with tenure in 2013 and made the move. But it was a tough decision because I really loved being at Berkeley as well. I saw you got a fancy teaching award there. I was very fortunate to win a teaching award there. I mean, I very, I just loved teaching UC Berkeley undergrads, I have to say. Yeah. Is, do you find there to be much difference between Stanford and Berkeley and who the students are? Well, you know, they're similar in that both student bodies are really diverse. Both student bodies are super smart. There's a lot of Californians in both places, of course. So there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of differences too. I mean, UC Berkeley has like a lot of working class kids or, you know, folks from working class, often immigrant backgrounds. And, you know, there when you're teaching, like you really feel like you're almost watching upward mobility happen. You know, you're watching these kids like scrap through the community college system and the Cal State system. UC Berkeley takes a bunch of transfers through those systems. And those, those students especially really stick out. You'll have students who are in their 40s or are ex-convicts or took all this time off and then went back and went through the community college system. And, and so there's even more diversity, especially with respect to age and class background amongst the Berkeley students. And you know, it was a real privilege to play a role in their journey because it's, it's amazing. Yeah, the UC system is just a great engine of upward mobility, maybe the biggest institution doing that in the U.S. What was your main research work as you were at Berkeley and then starting at Stanford? Well, at Berkeley, that's when I developed a lab and things really got very diverse. So I started working on a bunch of different topics, maintained the work on cooperation, started doing more of the work on politics. And probably the thing that I started working on at Berkeley that I might, I guess I'm most identified with is this work that I did with Matthew Feinberg, my former student, good friend as well, on moral reframing which is a technique of political communication and political persuasion in which you make your argument for a policy position, an issue, a candidate, whatever it is, not in terms of your moral values necessarily, but in terms of the moral values of the person you're targeting for persuasion. And what that can lead to is some really different kinds of political appeals, like a patriotism-based argument for same-sex marriage or an argument for environmental protection that might be in terms of patriotism or maybe even religious purity and sanctity. So you end up making these very different political appeals that can be, and on average are more persuasive because they're tailored to the person that's hearing them. That's the subject of your TED talk that I watched from a number of years ago. What made you want to do that in that format? Well, I was invited to do it. And I think yeah, that's a really cool question. I think one, one of our findings is that not only are these kinds of messages on average more persuasive, and I think they're representative of a larger class of messages of just like messages that connect to deeply held values or beliefs of a person are going to be more persuasive to them. And 
we also observe that people don't think like that when they go to make a persuasive message for politics, they try harder to render their own beliefs. Like if you say, you know, please really try to be persuasive. They're like, okay, I really think that the reason you should agree with me on this is because of this, you know, and they just give their own reasons, which is really interesting because like, if you were trying to persuade somebody to buy your used car, you would not talk to them about all of your reasons for thinking the car is great or, or your reasons to want them to buy it. You know, you wouldn't say, oh, I can't wait to get your money because I'm going to spend it on this. And that will probably save a little bit of your money. You know, instead you would get in their head and you would think, well, what do they want? Do they want a reliable car? If they want a reliable car, is this a reliable car? Can I make that case credibly? And we just don't do that kind of thinking with politics. Like we really want people to agree with us for our reasons. And we're just very, very focused on our reasons. We're not very pragmatic by nature, I think, with politics and just maybe any deeply felt moral views we have. And I'm not critical of that. I think that there's a lot of value in people finding their reasons, polishing those reasons, sharing them with like-minded others and developing a moral community. Like, I think there's a lot of, lot that's really great about that, but it can also limit a movement to only those people that can immediately get on board for the same reasons with those views. And so if you're going to win in a pluralistic democracy like ours, you're going to need to usually diversify the reasons why somebody could agree with you and accept people uh, agreeing with you for different reasons. So anyway, a long way to answer your question, I kind of wanted to get the word out that, hey, the way we do this on autopilot is not necessarily the way you're going to win elections or the way you're going to put together a really winning pluralistic coalition. So what I've run into, I've seen a couple consulting groups that are pushing progressive messaging to be values-based, to, to connect to people's values and doing tests. And so trying to target the messages to the values that they've perceived in people or surveyed in people. The other thing that comes to mind is like that effort in Kansas around abortion in the recent election, where from what I read, there was a great deal of effort to communicate to Kansans in the way that they could hear, which I assume is very similar to the, what you're suggesting. Are you aware of anything about that in particular and how they thought about it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my mom is active in Kansas state politics, actually. She's the chair of the Democratic Party in Douglas County, the like bluest county where Lawrence, Kansas is. Which used to not be a blue county pretty recently. No, I think it was. I think it's been blue for because it's where the university is. Okay, okay. Yeah, I, I can look that up. And they were getting talking points, you know, from Planned Parenthood saying, like, we believe this is going to be the best way to advocate for this on this issue with this group. And I know that, among other things, it was like uh, liberating people from the tyranny of big government getting into your personal business, which is a pretty darn good way to communicate with conservatives, especially like primarily rural conservative Christian Kansans who are kind of you got the the Christian identity can be activated, but the like skepticism about big government, especially on social issues, can also be activated and made relevant. And I think they were very wise to try to activate that. You don't want a tyrannical government overreach here. And I know that Planned Parenthood helped support uh, a really compelling canvassing experiment that was done by some colleagues of mine, David Brockman, Josh Kala, and Adam Seth Levine, where they took techniques from deep canvassing, which is a technique of door-to-door canvassing that's been shown to be very persuasive. 
and then merged it with the ideas from moral reframing that that Matt Feinberg and I worked on. They're rooted in other work. And the two together were effective at persuading people on the topic of abortion and their views of Planned Parenthood specifically, which is, I think, really compelling because you wouldn't think that it would be easy to change anybody's mind on abortion in America. I think that there's good reason to think that you can actually persuade people and move them a little bit. We have evidence for that. What reaction did you have to the TED Talk and other efforts to kind of popularize your research in this area? It's so interesting because I got kind of pulled in two directions as a result of that, because it did get a lot of attention, especially in like 2017 to 2020, let's say. One direction was to the left from progressives, uh, Democrats who wanted wanted to advance the science of political persuasion so they can win elections, which I was enthusiastic about supporting that. And then the other one was a pull towards not really even the middle necessarily, but a pull towards the bridging community. So people that are very concerned with bridging divisions between the left and right. And that community resonates with me too. I think we have deep conflicts in America that are problematic and destabilizing, often really unfair and based in misperceptions and a lack of kind of common decency and civility. It's rooted in misperceptions. People think the other side punched them first and each side's looking at some really bad excesses that they can point to. I have mine that I would point to that I think are are worse than theirs, you know, <laughs> but they surely think the same thing. And, and we just got to deal with that conflict as well. So I'm, I'm left of center. I'm very left of center. I was a union organizer. I care a lot about class politics, especially, and I really want to effectively advocate for them and help help my candidates win. But I also really want to help heal our political divide. And I actually think those are pretty complementary efforts. Yeah. And in my podcast, I've interviewed people from both communities because I, I also feel like those are th- both threads we need to be following at this time. It's obvious that we have people doing good work in both those areas and, and things that need to be done and need to be done better in, in both areas. So I get it. You mentioned that you have this lab that you're running. Tell me about that. How'd you get that started and what are you doing there? Yeah, uh, it's the Polarization and Social Change Lab. It has a, a staff of full-time researchers who help us deploy our studies and analyze our data. And then it also has a bunch of graduate students and postdoctoral scholars who are affiliated with the lab. We do joint research projects together and try to advance the the science of you know a, a bunch of things, political persuasion, effective tech tactics for affecting social change ways to bridge political and social divides more generally, ways to improve Americans' democratic attitudes and stabilize democracy. We're very interested in political dilemmas that we perceive as concerning and and trying to do research that ideally provides some kind of actionable insights that can actually be of some use in the world. So continuing that work that we were doing back at Berkeley with political persuasion originally. Is that where the Strengthening Democracy Challenge was located? Yeah, that's right. And we sort of rebranded the lab a few years ago, and we were lucky to get an investment from Stanford in our work, and we're able to kind of level up the operation. And I wanted to take something on that was bigger, working with some just fantastic early career scholars, um, Jan Volkel, Nick Stignaro, James Chu, and, and some other folks. We crafted an idea to 
crowdsource the problem of how to improve Americans' democratic attitudes. We had a few different democracy-related attitudes we were concerned with. So one is partisan animosity, which has been growing in the U.S. for 40, 50 years. Another was uh, concern about undemocratic practices, like not acknowledging lost elections or shutting down voting places in areas that support the other party, things like that. And then support for partisan violence, which is not at a high level in the U.S., but is definitely at a concerning level. Like it would be best if it was zero, right? Somebody killed their neighbor in the news today because they thought they were a Democrat. Jesus. Yeah. And it's, I think there's good reason to think it'll get worse. So these are the three outcomes we were targeting. And the conventional way that people do research in our space is they get an idea for how to improve one of these things. They go test it and then they write a paper about that. And people were doing that and that work was valuable and was disseminating out from academia. But what we wanted to do was get more people working on this, try to get as many of the great ideas that people had as possible together, incentivize people to be thinking about these three problematic outcomes, and then also get a comparison of like, how do these ideas stack up against each other using common metrics? So what we did was we did a crowdsourced tournament where we put out a call for people to submit their ideas for ways to improve these attitudes. We got 252 submissions, which was like five or six times what we expected to get in terms of participation. We carved that down to the 25 we thought were most promising and ran a, a massive experiment with 32,000 people testing those 25 different ideas for how to improve Americans' democratic attitudes and polarized attitudes against control conditions where they didn't get any experience to treat them. And we were able to then compare these 25 ideas and see what are the best ideas, at least as we were measuring it. And it was a huge study, a massive undertaking. So many people worked on this at some level. The population of people that took the study is larger than the town of Ithaca, New York, where I went to graduate school. It was a pretty huge undertaking. Did you work with firms on that? Because there are all these research polling survey type firms that handle panels or whatever. What was the underpinning for dealing with 36,000 people or whatever it was? Yeah, it outstripped our capacity to directly administer the, the studies. And then we couldn't find any, what we thought of as high quality sur uh, survey respondent platform that could give us the volume of people we needed. So we worked with Bovitz, which has a panel called the Forthright Panel. And then they contracted with two other panels and kind of ran that part for us. And then they had to do all sorts of stuff to make sure participants weren't participating multiple times. You can do that with IP address checking. But that was the thing you really don't want is that maybe these panels overlap so much. You think you're paying for 30,000 people and you're really getting 16,000 people or something. And you don't know who's who, right? Or who the doubles are. So they did that and they were fantastic and they, they made it possible. And I, I think we got a lot of great insights on, on how to move these things. So what did you learn? So thinking about the democratic attitude specifically, there were three strategies that were reflected in mostly each one was reflected in multiple interventions that we tested. I'm, I'm going to call these ideas that were sent to us interventions. And we had this one constraint that when people submitted stuff to us, it had to be something that somebody could experience in a survey in under eight minutes, because we had to be able to embed it in essentially a political poll so that we could survey people about their democratic attitudes on the back end. And that's a pretty big restriction, but people were really creative within that restriction. So we got videos, 
audio. People submitted things where survey respondents, poll takers could interact with like a chat bot or, or somehow interact with a, a, an actually not present rival partisan. People got really creative with this. And the three strategies that I, that I want to highlight here are, one, some of these interventions that were most effective corrected people's misperceptions of the views of people on the other side. These are like misperception correction interventions. This was probably the single strategy that was most imp- most effective in the Strengthening Democracy Challenge. Just as an example, we did a study where we corrected people's perceptions of how much their rival partisans support political violence, because it turns out that people overestimate that by like three or 400%, just massively overestimate how much, let's say, the average Republican supports the use of violence to achieve political goals. Then if you just correct that, people level down their own support for political violence, like 40 plus percent. And it persists. We found it persisted even about a month later. We could follow up and and see that just showing people like four statistics on a single screen from a survey they took a month ago, they still have less support for political violence four weeks later. So this is a huge thing is that many Americans are thinking we can't bring a knife to a gunfight here. They're terrible. They're out for blood. And so we have to be too. And if you can intervene and say, well, things are not rosy, but you are overestimating how, how bad the views of your rivals are, that is a very effective strategy. People are not getting that kind of information from the news. you know. So that was one effective strategy. A second effective strategy I wanted to highlight is a video somebody submitted, a brilliant graduate student, Katie Clayton, actually here at Stanford, she and Mike Toms, a political scientist here, submitted a video with scenes of civic unrest and police repression in countries that were dealing with some degree of democratic collapse and made the connection like, this is connected to democratic backsliding. It starts small, it gets big, then the government collapses into autocracy, and now you have police repressing dissidents in the streets and everything goes sideways, you know, and that can happen. And then showed video of the January 6th Capitol riot, like that could happen here. Don't assume it can't. That was a very effective intervention. And I think it was effective because people are not thinking very concretely about the real risks that could come from what seem like small steps towards democratic collapse, but it can get away from you and you're sliding down a hill before you know it. Then the third strategy I'll highlight was what we call elite cues. And this would be hearing from trusted political leaders that you should follow democratic norms or you should not use political violence or what have you. And this would be epitomized perhaps best by this video that somebody submitted of the Utah gubernatorial candidates in 2020. They filmed a video where they got together and they said, hey, we don't agree on everything but we are going to acknowledge the results of this election. We have basic respect for this process. Let's do this. You know, let's go have this election. And it's really cool. Yeah, it's a really cool video and a real credit to them that they did this. It surfaces how in an election, you, you might think they're just relentlessly competing all the time, but they're actually cooperating below the surface on the basic rules of the game when it works right. And, and we need to make that explicit these days. We can't just leave that implicit because democracy is being challenged. And that's what they did. And and just watching that video improved people's democratic attitudes because it kind of reminded them, hey, our leaders, the best ones, you know, are following democratic rules and they're saying we should too. 
what, what does that make you think about sort of the reverse, which is like, if elite cues are effective in going the right direction, then I assume probably elite cues can also take you down the wrong road. And so you have like Trump at a rally saying, you know, rough them up or cueing violence as he has done at various points. Can you reason fairly that that would also be just as effective? Yeah, hundred percent. There's good evidence for that. Katie Clayton, the same brilliant graduate student I mentioned has, has done research showing that Donald Trump's rhetoric around election fraud leads Republicans to have less faith in elections. And then she and I got together and tried to do the opposite. What if you took those Republicans who have stood up and said, actually, I think the 2020 election was done fairly, which to his credit, Mitch McConnell did. And if you show that to Republicans, we found it increases their election confidence by you know, like 5%. That's not a, a large amount, but it is, I think, the only documented positive effect in the published literature. It's almost published this paper, but in the literature, it's the only one I know of that it can increase Republicans' election confidence. We did the same thing with COVID vaccination, where you want to get Republicans to be more inclined to vaccines. The biggest effect size I've seen is our experiment showing people Donald Trump endorsing vaccination increases Republicans' intent to vaccinate. And that effect was driven by their answers to this question, do you think Republican leaders would want you to get vaccinated? Like that, that is the question that tracked the effect. And so people, they get this information and they get their sense of what is the right position to take from the leaders they trust or to a great extent from the leaders they trust. And so in our lab, we're always like, okay, first, can you use an elite cues intervention on this problem? It's very hard to do that on election fraud suspicions now, because that's gotten even worse since we did our experiment. But on some issues, like let's say you're pro-choice and you'd like more Republicans to be pro-choice. you The first thought you might have is, can I find compelling, trusted leaders in the Republican community who will espouse a pro-choice view? Answer is no. Go to the next strategy. But if you could find a bunch, then that would be the first thing to do, probably. It's one thing to do an experiment in a lab with a subset of people that, and over a short time period, it's another thing to make actions in the real world where there are unforeseen consequences, where there's a repeated game going on. You do something, it provokes a reaction from the other side. That reaction could make a small move in the right direction, actually a large move in the wrong direction. How do you think about reasoning from the experiment mm -hmm. to the world? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a great question because you should be, I mean, you're maybe too polite to put it this way, but it's good to be skeptical of a lot of the results that I'm talking about because they're, they're people's responses in surveys. And there's a lot of reasons why things get more complicated in the real world. For one, your opponent has a chance to respond. And it could be that certain kinds of persuasive appeals wouldn't actually scale as well in campaigns as others because they're easy to respond to and knock down, you know. In particular, I think elite cues can, if it is true that the vast majority of the trusted leaders in some community of folks don't agree with the view, 
that could be a very short run strategy to try to platform the 1% because it's going to be not that hard for the other side to come back and be like, actually, it's 99% of us, you know? So yes, yeah, so I think that some strategies are easier to knock down than others. And I also think there's not enough research on this, though there is, there is research on framing and counter framing, like that is an area of, of work. Uh, I will say that a couple of the effects I've talked to you about have been demonstrated in behavioral settings. So like the research I just mentioned on how Trump endorsing vaccination could increase vaccination. We did that in a survey embedded experiment, not in a lab, like our stuff is usually in a an online or telephone-based polling, which is pretty predictive of voting, for example. My colleague in economics here, Brad Larson, took it the next step of like, okay, well, what if we pushed a bunch of videos out via YouTube to regions of the country of Trump doing this with those regions then show higher vaccination rates later and, and found that they did. So that's the more impressive study, frankly, taking it the next step of like actually getting people vaccinated using this knowledge. Likewise, I mentioned this door-to-door canvassing experiment that used moral reframing. Now that ends in a survey, you know, but if you think about it, when you vote on a ballot initiative in your state on whether abortion should be legal, you're kind of, it's kind of a survey question itself. So it's interesting because in, in politics, we both, we want to get these behavioral measures that count, but then the vote is confidential and anonymous. So at best, we can try to change that and then have people retrospectively report what their vote was, which is pretty reliable. But then weirdly, relative to the other sciences, political research has a better claim that their survey measures are really close phenomenologically to the thing they most want to affect, because the central behavior in a democracy, political behavior in a democracy is voting. And that is essentially a multiple choice survey response. I think this is a large question, but I'm curious to see what you say. We just had a midterm, right? And I'm certain that you paid a lot of attention to the tactics and the messages from both sides. What were you seeing that made sense to you in light of what you know through social science and what didn't make sense? Like what errors that were kind of obvious based on what you know were happening? Yeah, so one thing that I noticed was happening was that a lot of Democrats were picking the fight against Trump and Trumpism and Trump-endorsed candidates. For example, there was a lot of efforts to support in the Republican primaries extreme Trumpist candidates that Democrats predicted would be more beatable. There was a lot of effort to like connect people to Trump and to Trump's worst excess. Biden tried to do some of that even. Totally. Yes. Yeah, yeah, like the MAGA Republican rhetoric. Yeah. And I wasn't 100% sure how that would go, but my gut was that that would be good. Uh, Democrats. Yeah, yeah, because people have really overestimated, I think for interesting reasons, I think people have really overestimated how popular Donald Trump is and how strong his brand really is. Like it is very good at winning Republican primaries because there's a big faction there, but it is not great at winning general elections. He lost the popular vote in 2016, massive midterm losses in 2018, again, lost the popular vote in 2020 and the Electoral College and now radically underperformed fundamental expectations in the 2022 midterms. And that underperformance was more associated with his endorsements and his favored candidates than with the more normal mainstream candidates. So you can just look at like Herschel Walker versus Kemp's performance in Georgia. You have Walker's the Trump endorsed candidate who's extreme, low quality candidate, same as Donald Trump has no political experience versus Kemp 
who's more moderate, kind of detaches himself from Trump, outperforms Walker by a couple points. So I think that it was, I mean, just as someone who's incredibly concerned about Trump's effect on the country, I think it's good to see that running against Trump led to a really surprisingly positive outcome for Democrats. I mean, obviously, Democrats lost ground overall. But Depending on where, to, yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah. reasonable expectations, they way yeah. outperformed. Yeah. yeah. But were there other things, maybe smaller bore observations? Yeah, well, one thing I noticed, and I'm not done kind of figuring out what I think about this, but I noticed that Democrats ran on democracy and that Republicans were threatening democracy, that there's all this election denial or non-commitment to election endorsement. And even well beyond the Trumpist candidates, you know, the candidates that are like really aligned with Trump, there was all sorts of no commenting or or casting suspicions on the ele- on the 2020 election. And I wasn't at all confident that that would be a winning strategy, especially the way Democrats were doing it, which struck me as staying at the level of lofty abstractions about democracy. Yeah, that might work with the college educated people, but maybe not as you move down the theoretical ladder or something. I don't know if that's a way of describing it. Yeah, that's exactly how I think about it. And I kept thinking about the student, Katie Clayton's intervention that got people to more than, you know, as much as any of the 25 interventions we tested in our tournament, the one that reduced support for undemocratic candidates the most was this one that attached real concrete stakes to what democratic backsliding is about. And I never heard Democrats talking like that about like, what's this going to look like? It's a brilliant idea to make it more concrete. I don't like fault them for not thinking of it. And Obama started to go down there, you know, because he started to talk about like, we've seen in other countries what happens, you know, so he was beginning to do what we found was really effective. And so I worried that that rhetoric would totally fail and not be persuasive because I do think democracy was on the ballot. And so I wanted it to be done well. It wasn't an obviously major fail. I don't know if they gained ground on that argument or not. Yeah, but. it's really hard to tell. I mean, I, I, I've talked to a lot of activists, you know, particularly ones that are working in urban areas that are on the ground who would say they want Democrats to worry more about kitchen table issues. You've heard this all over. This is not something that can be received by a lot of people who don't have time to think about, don't have the privilege to think about the Senate or something like that, or uh, or even to vote. I mean, they're like, why should I vote? Doesn't matter. Nothing comes back to me, no matter who I favor. That's the standard thing you hear. It's pretty clear that different messages work with different subsets of the country, but you're still talking to everybody when you have a candidate go out and give a speech. And I think the lofty democracy talk can still be useful for getting college-educated folks to not just vote, but to be activists, to go canvassing, to participate in campaigns. You know, so it's not like a total fail if it only resonates with you know twenty-five percent of the country or something left-leaning college-educated folks. But you do have all their votes already, pretty much. You know, so I think taking that next step to make it as concrete as possible so people know what you think they should be concerned about and really visualize it because anybody would be forgiven for not getting that because it's not obvious. We've lived in this country that's had a hell of a lot of democratic problems with people being disenfranchised. But in terms of basic stability, it's been steady and for the entirety of everybody's lifetime. And so they just don't know how supposedly this is going to go the way of Venezuela, Turkey, and Russia. You got to connect the dots. Do you 
have political consultants who come to you and ask for advice on messaging? Yeah. Yeah. And I've done political consulting for campaigns before. I'll do more of that in the future, I hope. What are the main types of things that you can tell them or do as a consultant yourself that you think are really relevant and that maybe other consultants should know they could come to you for or implement? I guess there's a a few areas where I feel like the folks in my space have figured some stuff out that hasn't fully diffused out yet. So, So one would be that you can make these moral arguments that are framed to fit with widely held values that aren't just held by like conservatives, but but by a lot of moderates as well. We ran an experiment in the lead up to the 2020 election where we varied the moral rhetoric that a progressive Democratic nominee used, a hypothetical candidate. But we found if that person was talking about communities, working families, hardworking Americans, loyalty and pride in the country, patriotism, and talking about a very progressive policy agenda, that that was a very, very popular candidate. The most popular candidate that we could create in our study was that candidate. And they sounded kind of like Barack Obama, except probably more economically progressive. They kind of sounded like Woody Guthrie or something, you know, where they're articulating a vision for America that centers hardworking Americans that deserve a better deal, you know? And I just think there's a lot of truth to that message. So, and it resonates. And right now, Republicans are trying to grab it. So it's actually like under threat and contested. So that's one thing, I suppose. And then another one is just the actual distribution of public opinion on issues like racial issues, for example, racial politics in the US are really, really complicated. And I think understanding where moderates and conservatives, what the best way to characterize and understand their racial views is something that I think is helpful for democratic strategists. It's one of these cases where perception and reality, there's some gap there, I think, about what the racial views of, of especially swing voters are. Yeah, these are some of the biggest things that I end up talking to folks about. If you're talking to regular people, not academics or consultants or activists, who are concerned about polarization and increased partisan dislike, what do you think they can do in their lives to decrease this problem? Well, it's a good question. I mean, one thing you can do is you can get active. There, There's a large community of folks trying to develop projects that will bridge political divides, whether that's getting people into conversations across political lines or town hall meetings or online interactions or curating people's news content to be more balanced and give them outlets they can go to to get that information that's less biased to to a certain ideological perspective, get people involved in fact-checking the content they're consuming. There's a lot of ways to get like truly active in this space. And if anybody wants a list of places, feel free to hit me up over email. There's the Listen First Coalition is one coalition of organizations like this. So that's that's one thing. And then I think also you can just sort of be that person in your life that makes things a little bit better. I think practicing some basic techniques in political conversations with people who disagree with you, you can make a small difference in the world. What are those techniques? I think listening, active listening, like where you're really paying attention to somebody, asking them sincere questions, showing some curiosity about their views, trying to locate bases of agreement. We often go straight to what we disagree with somebody about 
and overlook that there's all this agreement that's sitting there as well. Before saying, here's why I think we need national health insurance, like real national health insurance, you can get to that point. If that's your point, you should say it. But first sort of saying, I can see we both care a lot about, you know, Americans being able to have decent health care and taking care of the health of, of poor people, middle income people and everybody. I can see we both care about that. We just have like different ideas about how you're going to get there and then make your case. But like surfacing those points of agreement can give you a, a better relationship. You know, if you're talking to your cousin or something, that's valuable and also a better platform for persuasion. So I think be that person that disabuses your Tea Party supporting uncle or your socialist cousin or whatever it is. I might even be one of these people in your family. And, you know, that that gives them an example of someone who disagrees with them, but is respectful, congenial, makes a good case and is still respectful of them. I mean, this is assuming their views aren't like disgusting and dehumanizing. One of the things that that happens to me a lot is I will interview an activist or a political consultant or someone who is on the battlefield, as the title of my podcast indicates, and they will say something about the other side that feels over the top to me. And, and you can imagine you motivate yourself when you're in the battle and there is a lot to see on the other side right now that is very concerning, particularly in the elite political class, the Carrie Lakes of the world, right? What would you, if you're talking to someone like that and they say, you know, something about Trump voters or, you know, something that it seems like paints with too broad a brush about the other side, what would you say to them? It's a really good question because I myself am pulled between the two forces, these two psychological forces of like tolerance and open-mindedness and frustration and commitment to winning and a sort of us versus them mentality. You know, I used to be a union organizer and those themes run through union culture, organized labor culture as well, where there's the, what side are you on? You know, are you a union person? Are you a scab? Which is such a powerful, powerful way to think about organizing. And then at the same time, there's also this sensibility that at least in the community of workers, the people that you're trying to, in principle, organize, that there are no enemies. You cannot afford to have enemies. There's just people that haven't yet signed up for the union. You know, that's the mentality is just, you know, oh, you disagree with me? That's great. We got we to set up a time to talk so we can talk this out because we really want to get you in the union. You know, and that's that's how you think about things as an organizer. You never can write somebody off because you're trying to win an election. You know, I was talking to a grassroots messaging specialist the other day who said, they wanted to tell people there's two teams, Team U and Team Coup, uh-huh. <laughs> which is a pretty strong binary there. Yeah. How do you feel about that? I'm very, very interested in... That's aimed at our side, right? That particular frame is aimed at motivating activists. I'm not sure I want to put all you know, 50% of the country or 40% of the country on Team Coup. It's plenty that's on there. It's enough to deal with as it is. So at first I have this union organizers sensibility that's like, well, yeah, there are people that are thinking and saying deplorable things and we need to go get them on our team. Let's do this, you know, or at least, at least have them hear us out, you know, and slam the door in our face. And then we'll go, we'll go to the next person on the block, you know? And so I sort of have that sort of shoe leather kind of mentality towards people who disagree with us. But I also 
think about the misperceptions research that I was talking about, which shows that if I gave you accurate information, let's say you're a Democrat, about what Republicans think. If I show you accurate public opinion data, you will, after seeing that on average, like Republicans more, dehumanize them less, and you'll support the use of political violence against them less. And you'll probably have less of a zero-sum us versus them mentality too. I haven't seen that measured. And that's after I just show you the truth, right? Like I just show you the data, you'll have less of that. It's all us versus them. We have to beat them and they're all fascists, you know? And so I have to think from that, that if I'm going to have views that are calibrated to reality, that I also should probably have lower levels of all those sentiments than I'm tempted to have when I'm just on autopilot. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's the thing that's so good. Yeah. Because there's a lot of people that are like, oh, we shouldn't think about things in terms of polarization. We shouldn't care more about affective polarization and anger towards the other side. That should all be, it's fine for that to be high. In fact, it can be an organizing resource. But then I keep going back to, if you saw them more accurately, you'd have less of that. Therefore, if we, we all want to live in reality here, and then that would dial down the conflict a bit. So that suggests to me that a lower level of the conflict is a more truth grounded level, <laughs> if this makes sense. Well, what concerns you most right now? I mean, definitely the threats to democracy. I mean, I think we're not quite done seeing what the midterm elections will bring, but I'm very worried about Republican governors. Well, I shouldn't even say it's not a matter of them being Republican, but election denying governors, election denying secretaries of state, all of whom are Republicans right now. I'm worried in 2024, we wind up in situations where state vote counts are contested by these folks and alternate counts are advanced and recounts are happening or not happening when they should. Or or even an anti-democratic candidate wins outright. I mean, this can happen too. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Because that could happen. That would be very bad. But I think the thing that would be even worse, (laughs) you know, would be if they win through this sort of confusion. And yeah, exactly. So, uh, and all the while saying it's the other team that's cheating. So that would be the thing I'm really worried about. That would be the scenario. And I think it could happen. So that's why we're doing this work. What's making you most optimistic? Well, you know, an interesting thing is that as someone who worries a lot about poverty and feels like a lot of hardworking Americans are not compensated fairly. There's some enthusiasm that I I do get from the rise of economic populism on the right. And I see some sort of future where that a lot of that sentiment could be put under a big tent that would pass some really great economically redistributive policies or policies that would encourage a more egalitarian society. I don't think that's going to be easy to do. The more the Republican Party has a constituency that has needs, uh, the more likely they are to serve it at some point. Well, yeah. So there's that. Right. So that's interesting. That's a very interesting line of analysis I hadn't considered. I had thought that Republicans would never give these folks the kind of economically progressive policies that they want. But that's another theory is that they would eventually need to give some of that or else they won't be able to hold those folks. Even fascists have to take care of the people sometimes to stay in power. I mean, it could be that we end up getting this kind of bipartisan support for minimum wage increases or something like that. I mean, to this point, we haven't seen any of that, really. <laughs> so it's a very it's an optimistic take, but it's Although not. You, have, you do see it in the electorate, right? You, yes. you do see those things passing in like Missouri or something. 
it may not exist in the Missouri legislature, but it might exist in the Missouri electorate. Right. Well, so that's a good, so, so that's something to be optimistic about is ballot initiatives have emerged as a major tool of social change, of policy change in the U.S. They're used way, way more than they were 10, 20 years ago. And we've gotten, I think, a lot of gains out of them. I mean, obviously, there's some cases where I think people have not voted in a way that I agree with on ballot initiatives. But on the whole, what we've seen happen through ballot initiatives has been a lot of stuff that I would categorize as, as progress. Any other work that you've got going on that you'd want people to be aware of? Yeah. So we have a project that we're working on now on Americans' perceptions of unions and, and what the effects of unions are on people's material well-being, their paid days off, their, their income, their benefits. And what we are finding so far, although this is early, is that people you know, misperceive, they underestimate the benefits of being in a union on average in America. And that when they get corrective information, that actually, that it increases their interest in being a part of a union or helping on an organizing drive. That research is still really early, but it offers some potential to find another one of these corrections where if you saw this accurately, you would have a slightly different motivation. So I'm excited about where that work might go. Is there any question that I haven't asked you that you would like to be asked? No, no. I think these are terrific questions. You took me to some some challenging spaces, some really interesting places, and I'm grateful grateful for your your questions. They're really good. Well, I appreciate the time with you. I really do, and I hope that people take a lot from it. And it's an honor to talk to you. Anything else you want to say? No, no. But I I love the name of this podcast, The Great Battlefield, and it's you know I I have this because I have this duality in how I think about these conflicts. Yeah. I stole it from Lincoln, by the way. Ah, okay, okay. This is yeah. great. If you think about that, we are met on the great battlefield of this war. Yeah. Yes, of course. Oh, that's great. It's so interesting because there there are so many dilemmas, so many conflicts in politics, and so many ways in which we are arrayed on a battlefield. So I, I'm thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you. That was Professor Rob Willer. He's at www.pascl.stanford.edu. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.